Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the marketing minds at doyouconvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you. We're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. We are here, episode 87, right? We're going to get to 100 before I know it, and Thais is also with us, which is awesome. Hey, hey. Hey, 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 there she is. Hey, hey, the uh, magic behind the scenes. <laughs> love it. Yes. Speaking of love, Valentine's Day is right here, so hopefully oh, you have plans. Perfect. And hopefully. if you don't have plans... Better get some. Buy some it's flowers okay. at 7-Eleven okay. on the way home. <laughs> yeah. You're already in trouble if you don't have plans, I, I think. I think Open, Open Door said to make reservations on, um, it was the Monday before. Like oh, the week, yeah. whatever date that is, like, it's almost like nine, 10 days in advance. I'm like, oh, that's daunting. We don't, we don't even <laughs> actually do Valentine's Day. It's too, like, everywhere is so crowded and it's just, yeah, I don't know. Get, you have it's to just, get a babysitter. It's work. It's it is work. work. <laughs> yeah. And, and you guys are- let's see, it's bad. Lindsay's birthday is the 12th. And then, no, her our anniversary is the 12th. Her birthday is the 13th. And then we have Valentine's Day. It's terrible. It's a terrible, yeah, terrible time that's of like year. Us. My birthday is trifecta. It's a week Butcher. after Valentine's Day. So we just kind of skip oh, Valentine's Day go. and do my birthday. Instead. So you get one big thing. Yeah. You do one big thing. Speaking of yeah. showing up with nothing on Valentine's Day, I, I just stop me if I've told this story, but it's one of my favorite stories to tell. Oh. I know we've talked about it at some team dinner in the past, but I don't know if I've ever talked about it in the podcast. Well, one day when we moved to Pittsburgh, we had a, a newborn. Avery was probably seven months old when we moved to Pittsburgh. And we were living in a townhome that that the builder had had built and was unsold. So they were letting me stay there for like a month or two, get my bearings. But it didn't have the only appliance it had was a fridge. There was no washer and dryer. So okay. we don't know anyone there at all. Like Melanie has no, no, no connections, no family, no friends. And so we're there like, I want to say maybe two or three weeks. And I was supposed to, the, the builder had ordered a washer and dryer to come to the unit through their normal process, which you know, normally that's ordered way in advance. No big deal. It shows up. Well, she called me crying one day about three weeks in because she had to go to the Cannonsburg coin up laundry, Matt, <laughs> which downtown that's Cannonsburg, terrible. there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great place. We have, I mean, now she would not feel the same way, but just moving to that area, it's a little bit older, a little rundown, and she didn't feel super safe, and the machines were old, and so she calls me up crying, and she goes, don't you show up tonight without a washer and dryer, because I'm never doing this again. Oh, no. And <laughs> what were you driving at the time? I don't think you've had a truck. A Mazda 6, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, it's like you just put it in the back, I'll, I'll take it in. Well, even yeah, that didn't work. So she called me, I want to say like 11 a.m., and I went into Scott Blodgett's office, the COO, and I was like, hey, Scott. I know this isn't like your problem, but I got a problem. <laughs> like you just hired me. So this isn't your, your problem. But I, I can't go home tonight without a washer and dryer. So I, I took off, went straight to Home Depot, went to Lowe's. And I was like, I want to buy a washer and dryer. It needs to be this dimension. And they're all like, sure. Yep. And then I was like, can you, you can deliver today or can I take it now? And they're like, oh, no. Like they just laughed at me. Like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I came back and, and I talked to Scott again. I was like, I, I will pay any amount of money. You can, here's my credit card. 
can we call some, he's like, Oh yeah, call Bridgeville appliance. Tell them, you know, Scott sent you. And these folks saved my marriage. So they, they showed up at like five 30. I just nice. took the long way home from work. Good. And <laughs> by the time I was there, we had a washer and dryer. So Man. I just, fun. let me just say, I, I make sure that there's something Valentine's related because I, I, I still have PTSD from that whole experience, even though it ended well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sounds terrifying. Even the, the thought is, yes, nice to be thought of. I feel like my wife would be like, I just bought new clothes. Sorry, you didn't give me a washer and dryer. I've been buying new clothes for the past two months. <laughs> okay. Right. How'd that yeah. happen? All know. right. Well, I guess in some ways, story time already started, but Thais, you <laughs> want to kick us off with uh, the actual story time segment here? Yeah. So I've been thinking lately about the concept of print. I know Uh-oh. that could be a dirty word Uh-oh. to some people, but especially magazines and what use they could be of any to, to home builders. And I came across an article, I shared it in our internal marketing channel, about 10 brands that have launched print magazines in 2019. And the interesting thing is that most of these brands are tech brands, but they're launching these brands not for mass distribution. I mean, these magazines not for mass distribution, but right. you know, to very specific segments of their audience for specific events, specific locations. And it just kind of got me thinking as we sort of, there's this trend toward experiential marketing and, Mm -hmm. you know, what happens in your model homes and sales centers and how are you, you know, presenting your brand and your story and who you are, you know, in your model homes and sales centers, especially if it's a, if it's a busy place and it's somewhere where people sit and wait and talk, you know, if you have, you know, print, not collateral, but, you know, print magazines or, or something like that where people can grab and look at, why not make it your own? Why not make it your own publication or some variation of that? And it doesn't have to be like a monthly, you know, thing, but yeah, it could be kind of like I've talked about the podcast. It can be a more evergreen piece that lasts for around a year or more. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like maybe like a gallery of like, let's say you do not, not even high end, but like, here's our favorite kitchens that they've built favorite, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it could be done really nicely. You're like, oh, this is amazing. I had no idea that you guys did this because I was overwhelmed on the site with all the other options I could choose. It could be stories of of homeowners, people who are doing great things. It doesn't necessarily have to be about your community, but things that are happening in and around your community, you know, who's living there, what kind of great things they're doing, what's happening in the neighborhood and the city surrounding it. So anyway, that was long, but that's what I've been thinking Uh, about lately. I'm going to jump in. The fact that you were mentioning the folks who added print publications in were mostly tech. I also think it goes into this bucket of which we're dealing with, with the market being so good is you don't probably need to invest quite as much money in digital advertising or advertising in general, but also what else are you going to do with that? And so mm-hmm. it's still, when you say print, my hair kind of stands on end a little bit, but <laughs> when, when I, if I shift it just a little bit and think about it as a different form of content distribution. And again, going back into repurposing content that you already have. If you did want print publication that was 20 some pages once a year or so, that should be a lot of content that then can drive blog posts and a whole bunch of other things, podcast conversations and topics. So in that sense, as long as it was not a complete a complete time suck or, or budget suck, I think. But, but there's just this idea of what else do I put my money in that's effective? You know, we, the ProBuilder mm-hmm. article just came out. And those are the five things I can guarantee you 
but there are still builders who bless their hearts. <laughs> they bless they do all heart. five of those things pretty well. And they're still like, Kevin, I've got like a hundred grand left. What do I do with it? So when you say the tech companies, that's what I think of is they're kind of like, well, what else can we spend this money on? We're just not sure what else to do. And mm-hmm. and I think the right answer for them is at least they're trying to more clearly, more in depth, communicate with their best potential customers or current customers using that medium. Well, exactly. And they're bringing the online experience offline, which is the big movement right now is to create communities of people because that's where the connection, you know, really happens. And that's where the engagement really happens is when you, you know, are in a Mm-hmm. physical location. And, you know, we, we do this with the summit and, and other events, but it's re- having those people in that community able to actually talk to one another face to face. And that's just, to me, part of it, because you're bringing your brand story offline into a real IRL, you know, forum. Yeah, right. Love and it. Jackie was talking about this last week uh, mm-hmm. when we recorded that she just liked having this paper. And I, we commented about the fact that there is this innate thing where you just, it's that consumerism mindset of like, I just want to, I want that. And then I, I have it, it's mine and I can touch it in whether or not we go back to it or use it or not. I bought Melanie, Joanna Gaines's book. I think it's called Homebody because mm-hmm. she loves Joanna Gaines, like loves, of course, as, as a lot of people do that whole aesthetic of the modern farmhouse and shiplap and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. And she was super excited. That was probably one of her favorite Christmas gifts. Nice. I gave it to her last year, I think, or maybe it was her birthday. I don't know. She, she loved it hasn't opened it up since and like it sits on the <sighs> coffee table it's there and but i think there is something about print in general that when done well it's still kind of it does kind of call to you and you want to own it or, or have it for some reason well if you have people who are sort of lolling around your model home and sales center and they're picking up things and looking at them you know uh-huh. it it could have some value and i'm not saying print your, print your, all your floor plans and, you know, advertise in print magazines. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's just another version of how I talk about billboards. It's not actually that I think all billboards suck. It's just how much are you paying for it? And Mm -hmm. I do think I've always liked that approach, that company that, and I'm sure they're still around that has all of your subcontractors and trades pay for this print publication that you then use as a, as a collateral piece in all of your sales offices. I think that concept is great. It just didn't never had enough meat on the bones that was in the magazine to make it worth it. It would have to be done well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that does require the time and, and the resources, but yeah. anyway, no, that's all, all good stuff. All good stuff. Andrew. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. What's, what's that song from the little mermaid? I want to be where the people are. So <laughs> yeah. my, my story is we're at Disney and we're a few hours from Disney. So like, I feel like it's not, and it's exciting we went because, but we've gone plenty of times before, but it's the first time we've stayed on property at like a better resort, which was very cool. Definitely worth it. And the whole time I'm like, why do people spend this much money to go to Disney and like fly from, there's like the huge travel groups from like Argentina and Brazil, like hundreds and hundreds of people that are grouped together. Like their mm-hmm. kids go, they send them away and like, and just watching people on like a Thursday in January, like, what are they doing here? Like. Like we're like an hour and a half away. It's not, it's not that big deal, but I'm like, there's nothing like Disney. And then Kevin, you and I were talking about it earlier and it still like amazes me. I'm still, what makes Disney Disney? Um, I think we had like a couple, like they kind of scale the unscalable, like every production is requires so much human, like just, just one of the things like Addie, my youngest, like in love with frozen, they had, there might've been like 15 people just dedicated to this one experience one of like, say, 100 experiences that they have going on. 
And then like the whole firework production every time is like X amount of dollars. But just as far as like the brand that they've built by doing all these things over and over and over for years and years and years. I don't know if I have an end of that, but I'm just like, it, it's who do we have on? We were talking about the brand experience. John DeJulius. Yeah. That exceptional experience, just realizing like, hey, if we want to have this as far as if you're leveling up your own company. Like it just experience like what is 10 out of 10 brand like value as far as like this is the top of experience for people. Yep. Well, I think even now people would probably say this, but especially 50 years from now, people are going to be like, what makes Amazon Amazon? Mm-hmm. And I think we sometimes we forget how long it took Disney to really become Disney as we know it. And I saw someone post something around the beginning of the year, I think, which always happens about trying and failing and how all these people... And, you know, the first time Disney pitched the idea for a theme park in California, they were like, you're nuts. No, we're not giving you money for this. So one thing for sure is time and patience and tenacity to push through. And the other one, when when you and I were talking about this, is just the sheer amount of capital that Disney is willing to invest in itself you know, the, not just the amount of people involved in a, in a show, but the amount of people to do maintenance and repaint and oh, yeah. touch up the parks. 24 so seven, like brand new, like the park never shuts down when it's, when you're, when you're gone, there's just hundreds of people inside cleaning and touching up and preparing for the next day, changing decorations, making sure everything works. And whereas not just home builders, almost any business, it's awesome. So we made X amount Let's take that home. Like, let's not, what's the least amount we have to reinvest in our business? Whereas Disney, when it comes to the parks in particular, money is almost no object. And, and that's what Amazon does as well in terms of improving their customer experience. I talked about this before. Almost nothing that, that is on our phone right now is profitable. A- almost nothing. Amazon almost. without AWS would not be profitable. Facebook is probably the only thing out there uh, t- Twitter, not profitable. Zillow, not profitable. Uber, not profitable. Peloton, not profitable. I mean, there's just so many of these things because it's all about this idea of invest in the business for a long period of time. And then eventually, hopefully, we'll become Disney. So, Disney. Yep. and then nostalgia is the, because of that patience is, I think, the other key. Yeah, the, I decided if they did not have the films for each generation, I was talking to, I got, I got my haircut yesterday, another side story. Like if you think like, hey, what what song do I want to put on? Like, what do you most remember? I feel like it's your like middle school, high school into college years are the songs that you most, at least for me, I think a lot of people, they most remember those. Yep. And I think it's the same for movies. So like my kids will remember this set of movies. I will remember this set and so on and so on and so on. And then at Disney, it, they own everything. So like you have everything there for almost every generation and they still keep them running and everything is still done really well versus like, oh, that's the old one. We could just, we could let that slide. We don't need to worry about that. Oh, you're absolutely right about the music. And I mean, I, when I slept in till 11 a.m. after the Builders show, and then that's I super saw, late. <laughs> yeah, but that, so that was a great start to the day. And then I saw my, one of my cousins posted a meme about the band Oasis. And I was like, oh yeah, that was my favorite oh, yeah. band for a long time. And so all the rest Wait, of the day, it was, it was amazing because I was re-listening to my favorite you know, 20, 30 songs from Oasis and just having a blast. There is anyway. So we don't know exactly what makes Disney Disney. Nobody does. We don't know. No one knows. Yeah. But it's hard work and you can't, you can't get there fast. I think that's the only thing I know for sure is there's no company that's going to be the next Disney who just decides to do it now. And three years from now is Disney. There's no shortcuts. 
I think a big part of Disney is their ability to communicate and sustain their vision for the company all the way down. So from the top to the bottom. So you're not going to have people who are, you know, moving production sets at Disney complaining that they have to move production sets. Like everybody is on the same page in terms of whatever their job is, no matter how high or low it contributes to this overall goal of creating the happiest place on earth. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and, you know, even though Walt Disney is gone, you know, his vision has remained intact. And I think for any company, that's an important part of creating this type of experience and legacy. All right. Story time is already out of, out of hand. So mine will be really short. Let's pretend. Okay. Uh, that we have a hundred leads typically a month to builder X okay. or let's that's the hundred leads for happy acres. Happy acres. That's awesome. Right. Oakley builder company. Mm-hmm. And then let's say that the following month, there are 509 leads for happy acres. You okay. guys, and, and you guys are, we're the marketing team. We're excited. Yeah, well, who's excited? And and the punchline here is that no one's excited except for marketing. So these are these are real numbers. Marketing of a builder excited. who yeah. you know typically had a hundred or so pops up to five hundred nine leads, and no one was excited except for the marketers because at, after all of that that action from having five hundred nine names inputted into the CRM, they only ended up with ten appointments and one sale. Yeah, one sale and five hundred nine online leads. And yet, in this particular organization, they're high five and they're let's give each other bonuses. Like it's, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but everything is is clear skies and sunny sun and rainbows, and everyone else is like, what? And this is this is where the typical frustration between sales and marketing happens. And I I love the way that we've talked about it a couple times at the summit. Like, hey, marketing, why don't you follow up with your own leads? Like, get on a call or two. Send some emails, see what's going on, because the responsiveness rate even of these is not there. And right now, as we've talked about, the market's awesome. Yay. You can tell how unexcited I am about that because it's just so easy. But even even when it's easy, you can still get in the situation where you have way more leads than are necessary. And you really should be focusing on quality at the end of the day. So I just wanted to use some real numbers and, and tell that quick story of, you know, it is it is it just keeps getting easier. Uh, we used to joke, you know, we can get you three $5 leads. I think we could get 25 cent leads nowadays if we really oh, wanted sure. to. It's yeah. just, it's not the point. And so my other challenge to you is literally light any reports on fire in your company if appointments and sales are not attached to that report. If you have a report anywhere in the organization that just shows, shows traffic and or leads, set it on fire. Say Kevin said it's okay. And and just burn it because it's Kevin it's not helping it. you at all if you're not talking about appointments and sales. It just isn't. How long right. would you give <laughs> I'm done. the leads? Like, let's say you're so whatever strategy change from oh yeah December so, to January. Why does everyone like, want to be half 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 full people? Glass half full people. I, I, you're I, trying, you're trying, like trying two weeks because <laughs> no. a month is a long time of like we're stressing the whole system out with. Five times the amount of leads. Oh, you're okay. Sorry, I thought you were like, saying like, how long do we give those five hundred nine leads to turn into sales? Oh like, no, like not. I feel like the there should be some indication like that they should be working. Is it two weeks or is it three weeks or a week seems too short? Like if you five x the leads, it's Monday through Friday. 
mm-hmm. you probably need a little bit more time than that. But a month is like, okay, like clearly these are not working because it's been a month. Okay. I got to, I got to calm no myself answer, down first. I think the first part is like, we know where these bad leads are coming from. So, okay. I mean, I, I don't, in terms of we, I mean, collectively all of us listeners and talkers on this podcast right now, we know that Facebook lead ads don't work. We know that stuff going to landing pages when the community is open or you're gating dramatic amounts of content, they don't work in terms of appointments and sales. They work in terms of leads and that's it. So part of, I I just want to be like zero amount of days because we just like try it again in a couple months with a different strategy for maybe a week. But yeah, so the the non-silly answer is know what your capacity level is and don't exceed that capacity level probably more than a week or two without hitting the brakes and saying, we're going to scale it back down. So if you can only handle 500 really good leads because you've got two or two and a half online salespeople, then as soon as you run to 750, then, you know, give it a little bit. Or we do have some builder partners who they just have a completely separate process for all that stuff. And I like that idea. That so it. Yeah, I do too. Separate. As long as you don't get excited about the big number. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, that's like, I feel like it could force. In my, in my, the way my brain works, like that would force it to not get excited. Like, hey, we got this thing over mm-hmm. here. It's doing this, but it's not yep. part of the yep. the normal system. And a little bit more context there special. for everyone. This is leads going to a landing page where we're asking. I think a total of eight required questions between first wow. name, last name, email. When are you moving in? Do you have X in place? Do you have Y in place? How much are you looking to spend? There's like eight questions. And so then the team is using the answers to those eight questions to only prioritize the top 10 to 15% for personal follow-up and the rest are going through a nurturing automated process. But surprise, surprise, those who go to the nurturing automated process, it's like almost no one comes out the other end because that's just not... Not In fact... Here's here's homework assignment or challenge. I will send someone a $100 Amazon gift card. Just tell me the story of the time where you were personally nurtured via via an email drip campaign and decided to purchase something. That's not not business to business, but a consumer product where they just kept emailing you and eventually you're like I'm going to buy from them. Because And I think the caveat and was it something they said that was a catalyst or a different circumstance. No, I think my caveat is this idea of email nurturing. So I've told my story about Peloton before they, they've, they remarketed the crap out of me for two years and I finally relented. and was like, okay, I'm going to buy your overpriced bike because I think it's just so cool and I can't resist that anymore. But was it, I guess what I'm saying, was it the bike or was it like you, Kevin Oakley, like, oh, you know, maybe I do want to cycle more, spend whatever, like, was it, and Peloton was just happened to be the answer to that. Like for me, like I have these shorts that I'm wearing right now, actually, they, I was on their email list for whatever reason, but like, oh, I want to get new shorts, not their shorts, but then they happen to just be at the right place at the right time. Like, oh, I guess I'll try them out. But it wasn't them who created the demand for the shorts. Does that make I, sense? I would even give them credit for that. My point okay. is email specifically, because so much of what I'm okay. hearing from everyone is we're going to get 10,000 leads. We're going to send them four emails over the next three months and 150 sales should show up, right? That just, I, I personally, yeah. I've never had that experience. And then I used to just say in our industry, I'm not sure that that works. I'm just not sure that I've ever had that experience where the main and only way that I am followed up with is through email drip marketing. And I'm like, you know what, Tom, whoever you are that's been emailing me randomly that I don't remember signing up for or asking for, 
but I'm also don't see an unsubscribe option because it's a personal email that he's uh, mass blasting out. Like email. I, back I've never to bought you. anything from Tom, and I don't know. I just want to hear the story of people who have. People should call in with their Me stories. Too. Yeah, that'd so be, we can. That'd be great too. You get two hundred bucks if you call in. But I'm, I'm serious. I, I, this is not like I'm sure this has happened because so many people believe in it. But business-related purchases, yeah. I, can, I think that's a whole different story. Yeah. And I think we're crossing streams because business marketers are trying to use the same tools to transfer over to a B2C space. And I just, again, I've personalized or personal looking email nurturing follow-up or, or newsletters as the main and or only point of follow-up to me, the customer, versus a, a well-rounded situation. multi-channel approach using social, using display, using YouTube, whatever. Most that of the time when I'm... Yeah. I can you get do either one of you guys have one of like a hairbrush or I don't. And I'm I'm still sticking my guns on on the ones that I have that maybe half experience. They aren't the one that created the they weren't the the driving factor is something else. Say those like, oh, they've they got land or whatever the situation is where they they did choose to build and they already knew of that company. I don't know. So it's something else that actually caused it. The only reason I give my email to like those types of companies is for the 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 introductory offer, right. the twenty percent off, the fifteen percent yeah. off, and then mm-hmm. after three months, Gmail tells me that I haven't responded to their campaign in three months. Do I want to unsubscribe? And I say yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> the point is that the offer, when people do this approach, they're making is we're going to give you the basic content that you want anyway. That's their offer. So then you're like, oh, fine, I'll give you my email address because I want to see your floor plans or I want to know your pricing or I want to know mm-hmm. the basics. But then the idea of educating, especially is I think where I get really excited. Like how many, if, if you have bought something because you've been nurtured and followed up from a, as a consumer, not for your company or your business, then my other follow-up question is, did they educate you? Because that's the other thing is a lot of these automated drip campaigns are like, here's how this part of the process works. Here's how this part of the process works. And this idea of educating someone via eight touch points in email like what is this 2020 really like who does that if i want to know about how something works i'm going right to youtube i'm going right to your website and you better have the content there that i can just binge it all at once because i don't want to wait for eight emails over two months yep i think if you value something enough where you're going to buy something you will on your own go and look for those answers versus like someone sending you these answers to questions they don't know if you have so you can totally disagree with me. I know I'm overly excited about this, but I also just, I do want to hear ahead. real stories because then maybe we can re- reverse engineer that success of getting emails from Tom or Sally, whatever, on a regular basis about a consumer product and then saying, yep, you know what? I'm going to buy that. So email marketing is dead. I'm just <laughs> no. Again, yeah. just again now's just the kidding. time just to look at email marketing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I had another interesting conversation. We may not get to all the news stories. It's fine. That's this okay. is more fun. I had another interesting conversation with someone this past week. And they're like, hey, you know, we were at the show and everyone's quoting these really crazy open rates on email marketing. Like, what are you seeing? And I was like, well, I don't, that's, that's interesting. Tell me more about what you're talking about. Like, well, you know, our average open rates are like 10, 15%. And some people are talking about 30, 40, whatever. I'm like, well, Remember the the context here from everything I've seen, you know, 15 to 25 would still be great. And this builder in particular was sending out to their entire list of all time. So there was, you know, tens and tens of thousands, almost 
of people, I'm going to say almost 100,000, that would be exaggeration, but there's a lot of people on that list. And I was like, well, one way you can obviously make that open rate higher is only send it to people who signed up in the last year or two years or, or some CRMs will let you say, or, or mail platforms, only send it to people who have opened up one of my last eight emails. That'll like, if all we're worried about is the open rate percentage, we can, we can do that. But the other mm-hmm. flip side is, cause I, I still get them. You guys probably still get them too. Right now in the peak of the market, I'm still getting emails from people like, Hey, $40,000 off homes in uh, like, yes, Damn. if I was That's actually looking for a house in your market, I'd open up the $40,000 off email too. I mean, why not? Yeah. Why not? I got it's a funny one a few minutes ago. I have to redo the subject line. It's join <laughs> us for an open house. <laughs> what, the, what does that mean? It has a list of open houses letter within an hour and a half for me. Mm. That is not so useful. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. So I I think not, not that you shouldn't do email, but one of the things we were talking about was has email become another piece of noise. I was listening to Jeff Shore's um, content he's putting out around follow-up in preparation for his new book launch. And one of the points he was like, like email started out as this great thing. And now who is excited to get all this email? Really? Like we used to be excited to get email. We're not as excited anymore. And so what we were talking about on the call was, is is email slowly becoming more like organic social posting where, hey, creating a, a routine calendar for yourself, maybe devaluing your customer's time and attention too much. Maybe you should only send out an email when you really have something good to say to what you just said, Andrew, like, hey, we've got open houses. Yeah, you're open every Saturday and Sunday. I heard, right? Like your home builder. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you only communicate via that channel when you do have something worth talking about versus just being on a routine for routine's sake. Again, we don't have answers there yet. Just an interesting thought because at the end of the day, Google is grading all of us in with Gmail, especially uh, putting you in the promotions box or worse if the majority of people are not opening your email. True. And then then your overall deliverability becomes a, a challenge. So Good combo. That could be its own 360. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, um, I still though, as as I'm saying all that, you're absolutely right, Thais. Usually the value that can be created by a good marketer in investing in a platform or channel that's been dropped by everyone else, inherently the, the bar has been lowered or, or the opportunity has been increased when that happens. So mm-hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. All right. Well, if you stuck with us this long, thank you. <laughs> When we come back, we'll be joined by Melanie Diesel. She's the founder of Story Fuel and also author of the brand new Content Fuel Framework book. She's going to explain how you can use content marketing and storytelling to improve your brand and your sales results. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We have a very special guest on this week's podcast episode. Her name is Melanie Diesel. She's a keynote speaker, award-winning branded content creator, lifelong storyteller, and she's on a mission to share the power of compelling, incredible content with others. Founder of Story Fuel, which teaches marketers, publishers, creators, and companies of all sizes how to tell better brand stories, and the author of the Content Fuel Framework, 
How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for letting me come and share my story. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. For everyone listening, the, the quick background here, because I love the, the serendipitous nature of, of how technology works in our lives today. I landed somewhere on, on a flight, turned off airplane mode, just breezing through all the different social channels, catching up on, on life because I didn't want to pay the $5 or whatever for, for, for the really slow internet on the plane. <laughs> and Rand Fishkin had just uh, retweeted a tweet from, from Melanie saying that she'd be interested in being on podcast in the coming year. And I sent it off to Thais and Thais had a fangirl moment and freaked out because uh, <laughs> Melanie is a big deal. So, But Melanie, you've been a professional journalist I guess, give us a little bit of context of how you became so ingrained in content marketing and, and trying to make sure people understand what it is and what it isn't and how to do it well. Yeah. Well, I, I always say I became a content marketer quite by accident. It was certainly not something that I grew up. You know, I don't think anyone, does anyone grow up saying I can't wait to be a content marketer when I grow up? I think it's too soon for that. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's getting there. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I wanted to be a journalist. I was really into the idea of telling other people's stories. So I loved interviewing someone, learning about them, and then having the privilege of getting to translate their story to others. So that's really what I've always loved about journalism. But I had the harsh reality of graduating with probably the two least employable versions of a journalism degree, which is I studied investigative reporting as an undergrad and then arts and cultural criticism as a graduate student. Wow. And those are really the first two teams that get cut <laughs> when you're downsizing the newsroom. So uh, I had to find a, another way to put those skills to use. And that's sort of how I figured out that brands and marketers and, and advertisers and agencies had a lot of the same needs, you know, that that I could fill that we're looking for someone who could interview sources, who could create content, who could work on deadline, uh, who could create content in all different formats. That's the kind of, you know, backpack journalism we were being trained to, to do it all. Mm -hmm. So it was a, an accidental transition, but I think it worked out for the better. And what would you say is the biggest misconception among marketers today around what content marketing is? I think one of the things that a lot of marketers think is that content marketing is an opportunity to say things that we want to say or that we want our mm. audience to hear. And a long form ad. Right, right. You know, as we say, you bought the space and you happen to put words there instead. But in so many cases, it, it works so much better when you put the audience's needs first. And I think that's something that I was trained really well for as a journalist that, you know, sort of Although there are some big personalities, particularly in broadcast, for the most part, journalism tends to be a fairly egoless profession. You know, we don't often get credit. You don't often know who's writing the stories that you're reading. The institution that you work for gets credit and, you know, mm. you collaborate and you really the other people, the, the subjects are the star of your story and you're writing in an attempt to try to educate your audience about something. So I think adopting that same mindset, that same philosophy as a content marketer is really helpful because you're putting your audience's needs at the center. And when you're doing that, there's a much better chance they're actually going to like and enjoy and engage with whatever it is you're creating because it's truly for them and not for you. Yes. Yeah, starting from the customer's perspective and, and do you, would you say it's answering questions that you know are on their mind? Definitely. I mean, that's certainly one way to do it. One of the things I always suggest, you know, especially if you're a small team or a team of one, and you're trying to figure out how do I create content in response to my audience's questions is a free tool called answer the public. So it's answer the yeah, Awesome tool. That, 
Yeah. Is that the old, old older gentleman? Uh, it is. <laughs> it's got some, I, I love the humor or the whimsy, which is a word that probably shouldn't be used anymore. I no, it's so it. good. Uh, I love that one. It, it just, what is it? It's not um, Iliad, Odyssey, that type of writing. Gosh. Oh yeah. The old, um, like the old sagas of yore. It's the sage. Yeah. Like he needs <laughs> to have a cane in his hand. I just, yeah. it's, it is a fantastic tool. Yeah. Yeah. But this, we'll this tool, yeah, the tool, if you're not familiar, you can punch in a few keywords. So, you know, it could be your products, your industry, your sector, whatever is relevant for you. And it tells you straight up, what are the questions that people are searching for? And it does it in kind of a really fun and approachable way. So you get sort of data visualization and word clouds and, you know, little trees that show the different versions of questions. So if you're not, you know, a hardcore SEO search type person, or you find that intimidating, this tool is still a really good way to figure out what questions people are searching. And then you can use those questions to create content in response. And so it gives you a chance to be a part of the conversation, you know, that you, you might otherwise be too intimidated to dive into maybe a hardcore, you know, search, a search tool or a search process, or maybe you don't have the budget to access one of those fancier tools anyway. You know, this is sort of a, a baby step in that direction. I think it also helps illuminate the what you consider as general knowledge, you know, as expert knowledge to everyone else. And sometimes the the really basic stuff, we almost feel like it'd be silly for us to write about because to us, it's just so natural. We're doing it every day. Of course, we know how long it takes to get permits back to, to get the approval to start construction on a home. Why would we, why would we blog about that at all? Yeah. Well, the example I always give here is everyone has had that feeling when you're at, you know, the mall or the pizza shop or wherever you are, you see the pizza guy who's twirling the dough in the air right? That guy doesn't think uh -huh. what he's doing is particularly interesting, you know, amazing. He does it hundreds, thousands of times a day. And sometimes you can't help but stare, right? Or the same thing if you walk by a pretzel stand and they're twisting the pretzels, right? It's this tiny little thing that they do that is so fascinating because we're seeing it from the outside. Another great example is that show, How It's Made. Have you seen the show on Discovery Channel oh, or, that, or heard of this? That is my, every night my kids get a choice. <laughs> they can, we can read a story we can watch uh, an episode or something online of, of how something is made. Mm -hmm. And that's usually their first request. And every once in a while, I'm like, no, we, we still need to read now and then. Right. And, and that's like, that is an entire show that shows how factories are making everyday items, right. Or, or craftsmen in some cases making everyday items from, you know, a tennis ball to a neon sign and people watch it and they've done hundreds of episodes of this show and it's going on and on. Right. It's, it's, it is fascinating. It's, we may not be able to see it because we're so entrenched in our day to day that we don't even recognize that these are interesting to other people. And I think sometimes that's why either interviewing your customers or doing a focus group you know, or doing some of that basic search research really helps you see it with fresh eyes through your customers' eyes and see what of those questions and topics might be worth exploring more. Awesome. Thais, you want to jump in with uh... Yeah. Yeah. So you are a brand storyteller and we often hear that brands should tell their story and that those stories should make their ways into, you know, every piece of content. But that doesn't necessarily mean literally telling their story of creation in every piece <laughs> of content. So what does it mean as a company to relay your brand story through content creation? Is it voice? Is it showing more than telling, explaining the why and not the what? How do you tell your story through your content? One of the easiest ways to do this, and there are so many ways, right? There are so many platforms. There are so many different ways you can bring your voice to life. The first thing you have to figure out is who you are and what you stand for as a brand. And that's often work that a brand is doing before I would work with them, whether it's with a branding agency, you know, figuring out what, what is important to you. What do you stand for? What do you try to help your customers achieve? You know, you really have to have a good sense of self 
you know, before you can write a bio, so to speak, right? So once you have the answers to some of those key questions about who you are and what you're trying to achieve, what your values are as a company, it becomes a lot easier to weave that into everything that you do. So for example, if your work on your own brand has uncovered that you want to be helpful and you want your customers to see you as a teacher and an ally, then in every piece of content you create, you can ask yourself, how can I make this more educational the way a teacher would? How do I help my customers feel like they have an ally through this particularly difficult process that they may be going through? So, you know, having a sense of, of who you are gives you a chance to bring that into everything from, you know, a major content piece you may be creating, an ebook or a, a white paper, you know, a blog post, a video, all the way down to what's the subtext when you unsubscribe or subscribe to your email list? How can you bring your story and your personality into that as well? You know, there's really opportunities in every single interaction, every communication with your audience to make sure that story of who you are is being told in a unique way. Yeah, because it, it can be jarring if it's not done the way you're describing. You know, I, I'm trying to think of a, of a really good example, but to me, I go back to food a lot of times. And you'll, mm. you'll go to a restaurant where they're setting the stage from the moment you start to get to the, to the door to open it up to go inside and talk to the, to the hostess or, or maitre d' or whatever, whoever's there. There's something that's got some humor or, or some, something that just puts, puts the consumer on alert that, that we are going to be intentional about every part of this journey that you're about to, to start on. And it, it can be very, even something as simple as a call to action on a website. I was, I was talking to a builder partner this morning and the call to action was, Hey, do you have a question? Here's a team of people that can help. And it showed their faces. It felt very personal. Like I was going to be reaching out to, mm. to an individual who would help me. And then it just dumped me to, it felt like a whole other planet. It was just a, a plain vanilla form that at the top said, <laughs> you know, contact request, and had no, there was no personal nature to it at all anymore. And it just didn't feel like it, it, it fit. It was, it was a partial journey, not a total journey that had been considered. Yeah, that's, that's always tough. I think one of the other opportunities that's really easy is to actually tackle your 404 page, the error people yeah. get, right? Yeah. When, they, when they land on, they make a typo in the URL or something. That's such a fun opportunity. That's another one of those examples, like you were saying, Kevin, where oftentimes it's just the default, right? People haven't thought through yeah. to add some some personality there. So I know we're getting a little bit into sort of like copywriting and, and branding overall more than necessarily your story. But I do think that all of these things, all these tiny interactions, every communication you have really does paint a picture in the mind of your customers about who you are and, and what's important to you. And if it is important to you that you be seen as friendly or helpful or any other you know, adjectives that can bring themselves to life on those pages and those interactions, you want to make sure you do. Awesome. So I have a bit of a follow-up question to that and about story discovery. You know, a lot of, of home builders, they don't have an in-house brand storyteller. They don't have an, an in-house content marketing person. Often, like Kevin mentioned, it's just the director of marketing or the marketing manager who comes into a company and is trying to figure out all the pieces of marketing, advertising, promotion at once. And a lot of times they're just tasked with leads, leads, leads. Mm -hmm. What are some tips for sort of, if you're like a one person show, taking a step back and really doing discovery of the company or brand story? I think what's so exciting about being that person and getting the opportunity to discover those brand stories is you're a little bit, it's a little bit like mining for gold, right? You have this whole company, this whole set of employees and customers and partners 
You have all these products and practices that you have, and you get to be like an explorer, like a treasure hunter, kind of mining around to find (laughs) all these hidden gems, right? And I think from a creative perspective, that's really exciting. If this is now the 15th thing that's been dropped on your plate, you know, amidst all the other responsibilities you have, it can also be very intimidating, which I completely understand. So one of the things I always suggest people do is find a framework that works for you. One of the challenges in in coming up with content ideas is that we don't really have a shared language for it. You know, so if I were to say to you, okay, you know, Kevin, name three human names. All right. Charlie, Luke, and Han. There you go. You got three. (laughs) So let me ask you the framework. How did you come up with those three? Where did you go? Where did your mind go? Charlie is a form of my middle name, uh, Charles, and Mm -hmm. Luke and Han are from Star Wars. There you go. So you, but you did have a framework, right? You didn't just pick three out of thin air. You look to yourself, to your own life, Uh and then you look to, you know, a form of media that's familiar. The problem is that when it comes to content and I say, okay, come up with five content ideas, your brain doesn't know where to go. There isn't a, a known system that we use, you know, there's nothing to turn to. So it feels like we're trying to come up with things out of thin air and that's not productive at all. So the idea is to give yourself a framework, give yourself a go-to list of things or some sort of system that makes sense. Now, there's a lot of different options for this. The one that I use that I teach in workshops, I call it the content fuel system. And so what that would be is every content idea is made up of two things. First, it's the focus. That's what is the content about? For example, people, history, data. And then the other element of every content idea is the format. How are we bringing it to life? So are we bringing it to life through writing, through video, through audio, mm-hmm. et cetera? So if you use that as your framework, first thinking, okay, well, what's a frame, you know, a, a focus? What's a way I could tell this story? Could I tell it through history? Could I tell it through data? Could I tell it through people, through curation? You know, there are plenty of examples there of different focuses you can use. And then ask yourself, what's the best way to bring that particular story to life? Maybe I should tell it through video because our our history is very rich. We have a lot of video assets that we could use. Maybe not. Maybe I just need to write it because I have to look through the archives and come up with it myself. That's what's in budget and what's in scope for me. So that gives a little bit of guidance to say, asking what is the focus and then what is the format is at least the starting point for you to think about how you might bring some of those ideas to life and making a little bit of a, a checklist for yourself. So that you're not just sort of grasping at straws when you're sat, you know, you're sat down at your desk trying to come up with that week or that month's content plan. I, I, love, I that. love it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a different form of something that I've talked about for a while. Uh, and this maybe five years ago when every home builder thought they needed an app. And there's this, there mm-hmm. in traditional marketing and digital marketing, there's this, there's this concept of we've got to be on a channel or a platform without doing what you're describing. That the first part of like, well, what is the goal? Why are we choosing the format first and then working backwards? It just doesn't make sense. I was going to say, I think so often we do that in content brainstorms, though, where we say, okay, I need a video idea or I need a Mm -hmm. written blog post idea. And what we end up with in many cases, kind of like our our, maybe our apps that don't get used after some time is like a, a thing that we thought we wanted to make that doesn't actually achieve our goal. And so those format first brainstorms are like the nemesis, I think, of of creating good content. Yeah. And I think a lot of times those edicts come from above where the marketer sits, you know, from the company mm-hmm. owner or, or someone else in the C-suite who's just trying to plug a, a hole that they perceive as existing. We don't have an app. We don't have cool videos like this other place. Mm-hmm. And I think it's imperative that the, a marketer is, is good at telling in, enough internal stories in the same way that we would tell an external story to be able to deflect or re-channel that energy and say, 
I understand you want to have a cool hip video. Is that because, and then speak mm-hmm. the outcome and then say, okay, if that's the outcome you want, then maybe we can accomplish it this way because it's more who we are and how it fits in with how we tell stories and, and our brand. Exactly. I was going to give a very similar talk track, which is, you know, I heard you asking for blank. It sounds like you're looking to achieve blank, right? And yeah. then you can pivot it. Once you have an understanding of the real goal, you know, I think many times in marketing, the people who are not tasked with the same day-to-day as us don't necessarily understand the the link between a tactic and what it actually achieves. And so they see yeah. the tactic as a symbol of some sort of goal rather than understanding that other tactics may be even more effective at achieving that same goal. So I think it is, like you said, so key to understand why those edicts are coming down from above. You know, they, pro- they might not be looking for what they think they are. Exactly. And I'm guessing that some of the things you were just talking about is going to be the central focus of, of your book that's being released soon, the Content Fuel Framework. It is. Yeah. So that's, that's actually where the, the book came from is this is a, a system that I teach when I do workshops, when I do keynotes and things, you know, I love storytelling. I love coming up with content ideas. That's like my superpower. I think, you know, that's how I feel I can bring the most value when I'm sitting down and, and helping people do this, but I can't be everywhere. So I wanted to try to pull that process out of my brain and put it on paper so that other people could use it. You know, after I'm not in the room anymore, you know, if they don't get a chance to come out and see me speak or, you know, I don't get a chance to work with them in a consulting capacity, hopefully I could still help them come to, to see themselves as storytellers and, and find ways for them to, to find those stories that are hidden amongst the rubble. That's awesome. Be sure you check the show notes for a link to that book when it's available. And let's just go ahead, Thais, and in the Facebook group and in the LinkedIn group, we'll just have the first 10 people who comment. We'll go ahead and ship them a copy yeah. of the book as well. That's exciting. That'd be wonderful. I'm so excited. I, I'd love to hear what people think. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about two quick concepts. I'm going to let you mentally think about the second one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this is not helpful, but the two things I want to talk about is video versus written word, because I think today it's just kind of assumed. And we've talked around this a little bit that you start with video. And in fact, a lot of content marketers or, or um, digital consultants are talking about, look, you should always just start with video because it's so easy to repurpose from video to all other formats, you know, steal the audio, steal the, and, and the other one is influencer versus content marketer. Because I, I feel mm-hmm. like the line is, can be somewhat thin and term influencer is the you know front of stage presenter of the content, but in our space, and I'm actually going to start with the second one first, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm taking you all over the place, but a lot of home builders have asked me, Kevin, we're, th- we're thinking about hiring an influencer for our company to talk about real estate and, and our product and our homes. And, and I, my first response, which you'll probably tell me is wrong, and that's okay, is <laughs> why, why aren't you the influencer in your space? You already have this task of creating the content because you need, you need to, to have it on your site, to have it in all these places. It can't just be on an Instagram story from an influencer only. That's, that's not going to be a long-term ROI. How do you feel that line is? Is is an influencer a completely different person from a content marketer? Can they be the same same thing? You know, in in my mind, a content marketer is a person who is taking sort of a, a lead role in making sure that the the content that's being created is lining up with the company's goal and strategy. You know, and, and mm-hmm. that person might be called a strategist. You know, there's a lot of different names that are that are all sort of the same for what we do. But that person is sort of in a thinking role about the content, mm-hmm. and I think. An influencer is most often in the execution role of the content. And that doesn't mean that influencers don't think. I don't mean to imply that they're (laughs) incapable of thinking, of course. But what I mean is typically 
an influencer's role, the value they bring is the fact that the audience trusts them on something, right? Yeah. So just think of, you know, the spokesman of Days of Yore. We don't necessarily expect Michael Jordan to be an expert on, you know, how to create <laughs> the most cushioning, you know, inside of the arch of your foot on a shoe. Maybe he is at this point because he's been at it a while. But we trust that if Michael Jordan is wearing the sneaker from Nike, that it's probably a good sneaker, right? So right. so it's it's very similar to that, right? When an influencer is saying, this is a tool that I use, or this is a company that I trust, this is a product that I love, the audience is going to trust them because of their area of expertise, not necessarily because of their, is going to trust them rather because of their influence and not necessarily because of their deep product knowledge or their, you know, their understanding of that particular product. So it, you need sort of a, a combination of those two, the content marketer who's going to say, how does this message, this video, this podcast, whatever it is, fit into our overall strategy and who right. does our audience trust most to deliver that message? Uh, in an ideal world, like you said, it should be someone from within the company. That's wonderful if you have a voice and a face within your company who can be that person. But if you don't, if your you know your audience is not necessarily going to recognize you know your spokesperson or your your executives, then I think it's actually pretty smart to find a face and a voice that they will recognize and trust, and sort of put those those two strategic things together. How much does a company need to be concerned about? How often can you go back to that well with the same influencer? Just like the longevity of it. As a marketing person, again, it feels to me like an influencer is an, an ad that's being purchased for that trust that you're describing. But how much can you? And, and you just have you have vastly larger amounts of interaction with this than I do. So that's why I'm I'm picking your brain here. Of of is it a, a long long term relationship? Is that necessary when you start working with an influencer of of having that plan, or do you just hey we're going to give this a shot? And I guess where I'm struggling is content marketing is something that builds on itself and continues to. Yeah. to gain momentum as you're doing it well. Whereas I don't, a lot of times my, what I'm seeing brands do, it doesn't seem like that same approach is taken very often with influencers. I think, I think you're right. I think that most content is more of a marathon than a sprint. And, you know, occasionally you do see these sort of one-off things work where a certain, you know, a, a Jenner or a Kardashian takes one Instagram picture with your product and that might make a momentary bump in sales. But, you know, the next day they're going to post a different product in your same category because there isn't long term loyalty there. So, you know, there definitely needs to be a balance between what you're trying to achieve and the length of time it takes to achieve that. I think in many cases, working with a smaller influencer who may not have quite the reach, but has incredible loyalty with their audience and building a long term relationship with that person so that they're showing up time and again works really well. I'm actually glad that off the top of my head, I picked Michael Jordan and Nike as an example <laughs> a minute ago, because I think that's a perfect example of the longevity of a relationship like that. You yes. Know, you, we all know Michael Jordan is not going to come out with a new balance shoe anytime soon, right? Like it's Nike all the way through and through, you know, that that's where it's coming from. And that long-term relationship building has obviously, you know, been really, really beneficial it's hard to associate Nike with anyone else. And it's hard to associate Michael Jordan with, with many other brands just because of the longevity of that relationship. So there's certainly value in sort of creating that relationship over time. I love it. What the example I'm thinking of is, you know, HomeBuilder could certainly go out and hire Bob Vila to do something as an influencer or be essentially a spokesperson. Or you could go to a well-known YouTuber who's got half a million followers and is comfortable being on camera is focused on construction and have that longer term relationship. More more than likely, it's going to be longer term than it will be with Bob Vila, just because right. of cost and, and his time and and everything else. I think that's a I think that's an excellent point. 
I was going to say, there's also something to be said when you're working with not these super, super celebrities, but folks who are a little closer to the work that they do and, and to your audience, mm-hmm. right? They feel a little bit more approachable. You know, just because I see a Kardashian putting on a particular cosmetic product doesn't mean that it's a good fit for me in my day-to-day life, right? That, that may not be a match, but a mom blogger who whose life is a little more similar to mine, her endorsement may mean more to me, you know, if I'm your ideal audience, you know? So finding people, you know, maybe above Vila is a little too out of reach for your average audience member, but finding a, you know, a, a local builder that may be more reflective of your customer's day-to-day life. And so that endorsement may actually mean more because it feels authentic. It feels approachable. And it feels like that person is similar to me. They really get me, they get my needs. And so this product may also be a fit for me. Yep. Awesome. We could keep going there. I just, I think what you said is that, that I really want to re-echo is content marketing is, is for the long-term and influencers can, can be the same thing as long as you are strategic about it. And going back to the pressure on marketers to just get me a lead for today or this week or this month, you know, to get sales, to, to meet that, that monthly sales goal. That's where I just, I, I still feel a little bit uneasy about recommending that someone use an influencer for a purchase that's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars and something they've spent six months to a year researching on. Yeah. It, the likelihood that that's going to pay off is probably more questionable. It's not unlike, you know, I make this analogy a lot, but I think content marketing in many ways is is kind of like dating. You know, it wow. it really depends on what you're going for. And I always I joke with people, you know, if you're if you're trying to go out to the bar tonight just to find someone who's a, a short term conversion, then no, why bother <laughs> building a long term relationship? That's not your goal, right? Um, right? But if you are looking to build a long term relationship, if it's important to you that there are shared values, if this is someone you want to trust you, then probably walking around randomly proposing to people is not the way to go about it. You know, that's where you need to do the listening. You need to do your research. You need to take your time. You know, you need to have multiple touch points spread across over time. Uh, you know, it's just a much more effective way to find a long-term partner, uh, you know, to date the, date them and listen and provide value than to, uh, you know, just ask until someone says, yes, that's probably not the way to go. Awesome. So, and we've kind of talked around this a, a little bit already with the idea of, of think about your message and your focus first and, the, and then the medium. But I want to circle back because I feel like so there's so much social pressure for content marketers to be heavily focused on video right now. Mm-hmm. Just kind of unpack a little bit more as I worry that people get hung up on lighting and sound quality and, and the nervousness of being on video and, and the barrier that that, that can create for people to ever even get started combined with also like, I don't like to write. I don't feel like I have, I've, I've not been knighted as a writer by, by the general public. So I should do something else. I, I just talk a little about that stress that's out there or, or focus around video and whether you feel like that's a appropriate way to, to yeah. tackle it or people should I, be thinking a different way. I totally understand that concern about, you know, video being an investment of time and money and resources and maybe feeling like it's not super easy. You know, I, I try to be super transparent. If you were to go to my YouTube page, uh, you know, I don't know when this episode will go live. Maybe I'll have gotten my act together by then, but the much more likely scenario is that you will find a very short lived series called free content idea Friday. Uh, I had big grand plans for a weekly video series. I couldn't (laughs) sustain it. It was a lot for me, right? I'm not a video person. So editing the video took a lot of time. Setting up the audio and and the lighting took a lot of time. 
I would sometimes record it and not have done it properly and have to do it all over again. You know, that is not my strong suit. That said, I wrote a book in three and a half months while I was pregnant. So that's more my speed. You know, writing is more my first content language. So I would say everyone has this, this first content language. It's most Mm -hmm. natural for you to create content, whether it's in written form or to take photos or, you know, to do video, to do audio like we're doing here. Find what your what your superpower is, you know, what's your first content language, and then find a way to make that work for you. So if, for example, I love to write and we have an initiative where we need to do more video, then maybe what I need to do is write the script because that's what works for me mm. and have someone else perform it, right? Maybe I need to get someone else to be on camera, someone who's more comfortable. Or maybe I need to just do voiceover of me reading the script and pair that with some stock images or stock photos or, or you know, subscription yeah, image services, stuff. right? Yeah. Right. So so there are definitely ways to tap into whatever your first content creation language is and then find a way to adapt to whatever the end content you want to create. So I absolutely understand not, not everyone can do that. The value of video that that people see is that our algorithmic overlords at all of the various uh, you know <laughs> platforms that we're beholden to tend to favor it. And so there is certainly a lot of pressure to create something that's going to get that engagement. Um, you know, we see new platforms popping up. Uh, you know, Vine came and went, but now TikTok is on the rise. And so it's bringing mm-hmm. this new focus to sort of casual, you know, and, and vertical video. So there's definitely a lot of pressure there. And, and it's okay to feel that, but understand that it is much better for you to figure out what you are good at and create a system that's sustainable around it than to try to be everywhere in a way that is not sustainable for you. That's, you know, when it's not sustainable for you, it's going to be clear to your audience that the commitment isn't there. And that's going to make it hard for them to keep coming back. So my, my advice is always to find the things that you are good at and do them well and find ways to get a little bit closer to where you want to be rather than to just try to be everywhere and end up feeling burnt out and have your audience feeling like they're not getting what they need either. I feel like even personally, I'm going to take portions of today's uh, time with you and just set it to like autoplay every morning. <laughs> As I'm getting ready. Yes. This is awesome. I'll be re-listening to this episode (laughs) for personal reasons (laughs) a few times probably. Okay. So I have a follow-up question to that. Once you sort of identified what your superpower is, because I also totally relate to that. Obviously, you need to find a content marketing partner to do those other pieces to produce that video or whatever it may be. How do we go about finding a partner to do this? Uh, is it, are these yeah. freelancers who can do this, companies, um, consulting firms? What do, what do we ask? How do we sort of align ourselves and find a partner and try to reduce the learning curve and the friction that it sometimes happens when you're working with an outside outside partner? And, and maintaining the voice. Right, and, exactly. And the, and right. the essence of who you are. Yeah. So one of the most important things for you to do is before you ever put a job opening up on LinkedIn, you know, or Indeed or wherever else, before you try to go and find this person, you as an as an individual, as an entity need to be absolutely sure what you need and, and be realistic about it. And again, I'm bringing it back to dating, right? This is a little bit like when we when we think of creative people, we sometimes think that they're these magical unicorns who can do everything and they do it quickly and they do it for next to no cost because it's easy for them. You know, you need to think about who the ideal partner is for you in this instance and what skills they actually need to have. So a lot of times I see listings when someone's looking for a content partner and they say, I want you to do our content strategy. I want you to film the videos. I want you to write the blogs. You need to do SEO. You know, they want 15 different skill sets combined into one person. And I want you to do it for, you know, $10 an article or something just absolutely insane, right? 
you will find someone who will answer that ad and it will be a big mistake for you, right? So make sure you write an ad for the person, you know, or, or describe a role, create a role, whether it's freelance or, or full-time or a description of a vendor partner, a, a company that actually is going to suit your real needs. You know, there's the old saying, you can get, what is it, fast, good, and or uh, or cheap, but you can only choose two. Mm. Um, so, you know, decide what those priorities are for you and make sure you're, you're being realistic about that. I personally advocate for for two things. One, finding former journalists or freelance uh, creators who who maybe have a background in journalism. I think that you know not only are there a lot of amazingly talented journalists who are not able to find full time work that uh, you know can put their skills to use for you and your company and your team, but there are also uh, they have the the perfect set of skills to to really make a difference for you. And they're looking for work because many newsrooms are, are downsizing or not offering full-time roles the way they used to. So it's a little bit of a perfect marriage for you to find these really talented storytellers, uh, really talented creators, and to put them to work for your team in a, in a way that, that gives you both what you need. So I always advocate looking for that background and that experience if you're going to be hiring a freelancer or part-time, permalance, whatever you know suits your particular needs. The other thing I think that is very important is whether you go with a company or you go with a freelancer or you hire someone in-house full-time, you need to have documentation and guides for what you want and what you expect. One of the easiest ways for any sort of creator freelance relationship to go downhill fast is a lack of clarity and a lack of communication about what your Mm -hmm. expectations are. So, you know, if someone walks into the company and you say, hey, I need an article by Friday. Okay. What kind of article? How long is the article? Do you want it to be in list form or bullet form or written out? Do you want it to be technical in nature or should it be very simple and approachable in nature? Where is that article going to live? You know, you need to be able to give clear, clear instruction because you're only going to get, if you're lucky, you know, you're only going to get something that's in response to the brief that you write. So make sure that you've written clear briefs about what your expectations are so that whatever, whoever you partner with is able to fulfill those expectations once they understand. And you know what? I also yeah. love that because even if you are trying to get content in-house from subject matter experts, that's also a great idea of how to present what you need to, whether it's an executive of your company or someone out in the field, that's a great right. way to give them a guide and framework for exactly what you're looking for so that you what you get is closer to what you need. Definitely. Yep. Definitely. The, the more you can tell them, you know, the easier it'll be for them to uh, to give you what you're looking for. And I can say this as a creative myself, it, it can be easy without production briefs or deadlines and, and framework to get stuck in this constant prep. And, and I go back to video as an example of uh, a company can hire a full-time videographer to be on staff and they can be collecting all this great footage and stories and tagging them and and calling the footage and doing all this good work. But if you're not saying, hey, our goal is as a company to push out, you know, three um, pieces of content that are you know between one and one and a half minutes in length and one longer form mm-hmm. piece every month. Like you've got to be very specific right. in the final product as, as much as the, all the other pieces that lead up to that final product. Right. Cause it's really easy too once you start working with someone to sort of get into a comfort zone and you just start creating a lot of the same stuff over and over again. So having an understanding mm-hmm. of sort of the bigger picture goals, not just the, this article or this video goal, but what's our, yep. our monthly goal, our weekly goal, our, our quarterly goal, annual goals, and, and even longer term than that is sometimes valuable to look at to make sure each piece is building toward those bigger goals. Awesome. I want to shift the conversation a little bit towards storytelling and content marketing's benefit for internal customers as, as well as external. 
There's a lot of talk about how important culture is in an organization. And it seems to me, although again, I may be off base here, that one of the things that I concepts I, I remind myself of a lot is if as a marketer, you can solve a problem for an external customer and an internal cust- and an internal customer's problem at the same time, you, it's like a, a two for one win. And I feel like good content marketing, although it has to be customer focused, th- there are a lot of overlap where you can also increase you know, the pride of the employees in the work that the company is doing. And in any type of, of overlap there that can do you ever talk or work with companies who are thinking about content marketing for internal employees as much as external customers? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's, that's an important need that needs to be served as well. You want to make sure that your role as a content creator, as a marketer, that you understand the internal needs as well. So one of the things that's really easy to do is to talk to your sales team and see how you can create sales content, you know, content that either answers common objections uh, that customers have or misconceptions that they encounter when they're out in the field. You know, answer the questions that they're encountering in their sales calls and their pre-qualifying calls. You know, are they getting leads that are not a good fit? What is it about those leads that are not a good fit? And how do you deter the wrong people as much as attract the right people? So, you know, oftentimes sales enablement content is a is a really great way for you to to earn some cred internally and get some, you know, some positive relationships going internally with your content team and with the the content creation. And that can earn you a little bit of leeway to do some of the more experimental, you know, or, or outward facing stuff is if you can, you can tie yourself to a revenue team, like the sales team internally, uh, that's a uh-huh. good way to go. And then of course, there's always the feel good stuff, right? Like the employee stories or, you know, internal announcements, you know, talking about internal milestones that your team and company may be hitting all that kind of stuff uh, is, is also really helpful for team morale. And that's another way, again, to just sort of ingratiate yourself and show the power of content to the powers that be that, you know, maybe hold the purse strings and can give you a little more freedom on some of the more fun stuff. I love it. Yeah. I get, build the street cred is what we, the word we use the phrase and then, and leverage that credibility to, to do some of those other things that are on your list that, that other people might not be fully on board with yet. Okay. Last question, long form content versus short term content. Any misconceptions or, or advice, pieces of advice you'd give people who are, who are considering, I feel like, and again, Oh, and every time you say the word feeling is a dangerous thing potentially, mm-hmm. but I feel like everyone is continuing to do this short-term content game. And then you will have instances, I forget the magazine where like the entire, the entire issue was one article and it was their best-selling mm. edition that they had ever put out on a very in-depth topic. So talk, talk a little bit about uh, long form versus short-term mm-hmm. and considerations there. Yeah, you know, there's, I think they both serve a unique purpose. I think there is this horrible stat about goldfish attention spans that I'm not even sure is based on anything real, you know, hit us like 10 years ago and everyone got convinced that we needed to micro everything, right? We need micro blogs and micro content and micro everything. Um, You know, people still read books, people still watch feature length films, people still sit down in front of Netflix and binge an entire series in a 10 hour streak. So, There's no shortage of attention for long content when it provides value and when it's something we enjoy. That's the real key differentiator. My tolerance for uh, a tweet or a blog post or an article or, you know, a short video that provides a little value for me, that's not a problem. You hit next, you assume the next further down the scroll or further in the playlist, you'll find something that suits you better. When it comes to longer form content, it's a bigger commitment. And so we need to see sort of an outsized reward for mm-hmm. our time for that, that 15 minute video or that long form read. We need a little bit more value in order to feel like that was worth our time. So 
if you are going to create long form content, and I think you should in some forms, just make sure that you are absolutely sure that you're providing as much value as possible to your audience. And like we were talking about in the beginning, that you're really putting your audience's needs at the center because they might give you a minute or 30 seconds or even a few minutes of their time to see if something is useful. They will not give you 20 minutes, a half an hour, an hour of their time, unless they're sure that they're going to get some value out of it. So just make sure you're fulfilling that promise when you're putting out something of that size, that it's going to be worth your audience's time, that they can trust you in committing to that piece of content. Awesome advice. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be sure to include links to all of your social profiles for people to be able to follow along. If you're anywhere around where she will be speaking or have a chance to go see her in person, definitely do that. Be sure you check out the book and storyfuel.co is the company website as well. You can find more information there about consulting, coaching, uh, mastermind groups, and more. Can't wait to uh, hear some of the stories that you all are telling. Definitely let me know what you're, what you're out there creating. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks again. I told you you guys would like it. Melanie is awesome. And we recorded that episode a little while ago. Her brand new book is now out. And a reminder, you can also call in with your questions on this episode or any other comments, questions, suggestions, uh, hot takes at 404-369-2595. And let's jump over and tell everyone what the new question of the week is going to be, Thais. So our question of the week is, what is your favorite piece of content. It could be long form or otherwise that is outside of the home building industry. What is something cool that you've seen or that has resonated with you that's made you think about something differently outside of the home building industry? And I'm going to make a prediction that no one's going to say their seven email nurture follow-up drip campaign, educating them about something. (laughs) Could be wrong. I'm also going to take a wild guess and I'm going to say that the most impactful piece of content is going to be a piece of video content. Mm. Yep. That's a good guess. I think you might be right. So yeah, any, anything you want, an ad, an, an article, a video, anything that you... An event. You, an yeah, event. That's mm-hmm. true too. Yeah, so a single piece of content, marketing. not like yep. a like a series or I like the way this no, company does yeah, this thing. That's or all good. Really all rules. Okay. Anything. Yeah, it just has to be goes. outside of the industry. Something, yep. something cool. Content outside the no industry. No homes allowed. Okay. No homes no allowed. Homes. All right. That'll do it this week for published articles, blog posts, videos, and more. Check out doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. Have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.